We do get people bringing their children who, when the kids finish it, go, oh, it's changed a bit since my day. You know, <laughs> oh, it's so much better. You know, oh, hasn't technology moved on? We are definitely changing the perception of orienteering. Hello and welcome to a new season of The Run-In, sponsored by Envy and Straight Compasses. Happy New Year, Merry Christmas, all Ooh. of the uh, good wishes. We made it to 2021, Catherine. <laughs> <We're here. laughs> um, this week, our main interview is with two orienteers who've been helping South Yorkshire orienteers make a big impact in the Great British junior orienteering scene. Catherine has been talking about successes of SYO um, for many uh, recent ages. years so many i've been talking about it so many times <laughs> i know it's like you're sponsored personally by them actually yeah i know i just keep referencing them. well they're doing such a good thing like you just need to see how many junior relay teams they've been fielding to know that they're doing something right so i'm i was so excited to chat to pauline and pete Triner. yeah oh absolutely it was a, and it was a really good chat you know about pauline's work as a club's development coach it's, it gets pretty nitty gritty at points, mm-hmm. but it's really good detail about just what work needs to go into a successful junior programme in the UK, which I think a lot of people from either the UK or um, other English speaking countries without that kind of real Scandinavian club setup can uh, can take a lot from. So, uh, yeah, exactly. but before we get on to that, we're back in lockdown. <laughs> I mean, well, what is lockdown? What isn't lockdown? But yeah, pretty much everything's off again uh yay planned elite league races in the lakes are no longer on i believe which was going to be the third the other ones in january. january yeah yeah shame that is not a surprise not a surprise no <laughs> um i guess yeah so i guess you just got to sit tight i'm still doing some finding some tapes in forests but um that's about it like locally the tr- the, the the tricky thing that's kind of got my club in a difficult situation is like you're meant to you can travel locally what on earth does locally mean like should i be putting on map runs that are allowing people from all over my club to travel to like is that responsible are we should i be doing map runs that go around residential streets you know you're made to be labeled out allowed to travel to open areas you know like public green space um, but does that mean we should be allowing people to travel to map runs? Uh, my club are basically saying no, but it's, I don't think it's not clear cut. Mm. And if, if a club is split across a county boundary as well, it's as we very are. difficult to then, yeah, just by, well, technically locally isn't in, if you go outside your county, then that probably isn't going to be classed as local. Um, Our club champs were scheduled between Christmas and New Year. At one point, it was when half of the club in Surrey was in tier... I don't even know what tier they were in. Tier 3 and then tier 4. And then the re- then the Hampshire half of the club were in tier 2, which uh, now it doesn't matter because we were all in the same tier, so we can't do anything. But it was a difficult thing to, to for the club to, to try and decide. I think that meeting went on for a long time. <laughs> and then in the end, it didn't even matter. Uh, well, I was going to say, we're all in it now, aren't we? Yeah. But it's the... Uh... Yeah, and the allowance for juniors are, are allowed to travel to under mm. 18s are allowed to travel to events and those uh, adults accompanying as well. So it's a as soon as you get to university, then you're not allowed to travel. So uh, people would not have been able to go with the parents. to go on anyway, really, because yeah. there's nobody can give us permission to get anywhere. No, but um, anyway, starting the starting the year on a negative note. <laughs> no, sorry. 
<laughs> I was telling someone earlier. Yeah, yeah it's, it's the opposite of the calm before the storm. It's the storm before the calm, hopefully. Hopefully, yes. Yeah. Um, with new vaccines and all of this, you know, hopefully we're back to normal. But the British Champs is already cancelled for March. Um, yeah. You do wonder if the first test races for the um, GB national team are the third week in March in Scotland, 20th, 21st of um, of March. You wonder by then, kind of, what, 10, 12 weeks away? Yeah. Will we be open enough to do that? Will Scottish borders be open to people from England? Will people from Wales be allowed outside of their borders? Anyone from Northern Ireland allowed to travel anywhere into the rest of the UK? Well, all good questions that we don't have the answers to. No. So we move on to something more positive, though, and the British Let's. squad's been announced. Um, so we've got, I think, 14 men and 10 women announced on the uh, the British squad for 2021. And uh, as I think both of us will have expected, many people expected, we've got Grace Malloy and Ali Thomas have been named on the list for the first time because they are, of course, now first year seniors. And we've also got news that Jess Halliday and Matt Speak have both retired from the squad. So um, uh, sad to see them go, both of them go. Um, Speaking as well, I think his first walk was 2004. This is 15 years of doing world champs until 2019, so a long-serving member of the squad, and uh, you know, will be sorely missed, I think, as well. Um, mm. Wasn't afraid to pull punches if he if he thought people weren't um, up to scratch for how they're performing for the team. And uh, Jess as well, from I obviously grew up orienting with her around the West Midlands. Um, it's sad to see her go as well. She had some really good performances this year, and when we spoke to her in our interview um, earlier in the year highlighted just how good and consistent she's been so it's a real shame to see them both both retire but um i guess focusing on other things now um in their lives but yeah best of luck to them so will you're on this list uh what does it actually mean to be on this list of people what does it mean to be in the british squad well as as none of us can meet up and uh, <laughs> do anything it is it is tough to say so um, well, what, what would it mean in a normal, normal year, though? What, what did it mean in a normal year? Right, so we would aim to get together for a couple of training camps over the winter, um, either as a planning camp or a technical training camp, in order mm -hmm. to prepare for the next season. Um, we have ability to access um, training camps abroad that um, are helped organise by volunteers for the squad. So you've got people like Mark Saunders, Alice Bedwell, Mm -hmm. um, and John Cross, who will help with a bit of the organisation of that. And, um, you know, kind of a bit of preferential access to some of those as well. Sometimes they are opened up to others. So Euro meeting, I think, camps involving that would have um, ability for other people to enter as well, um, if there's space, but first come, first serve for those athletes in the squad. And um, I guess it does, in a way, help your case for selection as well, because you've been deemed to be of a certain standard already. And you'll be looked at prior to, not prior to other people, but... Um, it's already a marker that you've got, yeah, as you said, you've already got some kind of good races under your belt that you're you're already there. So that just kind of is an indication of what they would, what selectors would be taking into account anyway, I guess. Precisely, yeah. But then, but then you don't have to be in the squad to be named, as we know Graham Griswood's not in the squad because he's, you know, playing major roles in um, the upcoming Scotland World Championship. So he's kind of set himself outside of the squad but he can still put himself up for selection yes yes correct so not being in the squad doesn't limit anyone to 
um, being selected at all. Um, so it's completely open still. I know people were kind of viewing be getting into the squad this year as a prerequisite for being selected for anything um, in 2021 because of you know lack of selection races or any mm. major races from 2020. But I don't think that will limit anyone on the junior side or the senior side from having their fair shot at selection because we have name test races that anyone can enter and anyone can go to, even the foreign ones. Um, it just gives you, in a normal year, that access to um, you know, those training camps and also the ability to have uh, the squad's input into uh, if we feel like the selection criteria is is fair so you know are the name test races the ones that athletes feel that they should use there's normally an athlete representative who will kind of collate everyone's views and and mm-hmm. feedback mm-hmm. to make sure that um the athlete's voice is heard when any selection policy or decisions are being made around um around the team so mm-hmm. um and it obviously does garner that um that feeling of the squad as well you you know we have a group whatsapp group that information is put on that has a few people widen the squad as well um, in it to uh, who are kind of just on the on the outskirts of being in the in the full squads and a lot of information on championships is put up there on training on you know have you seen this thing that the Swiss team have done you know take a look at it <laughs> feedback and so forth so it does just help garner that in the winter especially that feeling of camaraderie that you need to get through the uh, through the dark months sometimes. Mm, fab well those are the as you said the 14 men and the 10 women on the list so you can check out the full list at, um on the british orienteering website um but i really wanted to bring up our next topic after seeing um quite a few instagram posts from some top swedish orienteers um kind of over the christmas new year period and it's about gender equality in well, particularly in, in Swedish orienteering and in even more particularly um, in Tiamila. Um, so, Will, do you want to set... And, and people questioning how gender equal Tiamila is. So do you want to... I've never been. Do you want to set out what it is and how it's different for men and for women? Yeah, sure thing. So Tiamila, I would say, is the, the focal point of the Swedish orienteering calendar. Um, this is from you know, someone who's never lived in Sweden, but the perception I've got from the clubs that I've been in and the people that I know over there, it's what gears all of the training throughout the whole winter of what leg people are going to run, <laughs> what leg you're aiming for, especially for the for the men. Um, because the men's relay uh, has 10 legs and um, starts at around about 8 in the evening, finishes at 7 in the morning, runs through the night. So you've got a large proportion of those legs run in the dark. So there's a lot of tactics based around how you set your team up, who, who does what legs. There's normally at least one ungaffled leg in there, so an unforked leg, where you can follow people if you so desire. Um, normally, there's probably two. So there's a lot of tactics about how you set your team up to get into the long night train, um, how you get out of the night, into day, and then finish off the relay as well. The women's is quite a bit different to that. So only five legs, and it starts at two in the afternoon and finishes about five in the afternoon. Mm. So it's a lot shorter, a lot less legs, and there's obviously no night or interring element in it. Um, I think this is a cultural and uh, a, a cultural kind of overlay of the Swedish orienteering. Oh, and and well, Eucla is guilty of this as well, actually, because Eucla mm. seven legs for the men, 
st- again starting about 11 in the evening finishing at seven in the morning five four legs for the women yeah um again run through the afternoon so no night orienteering element and whether it's I, I don't know the background of this but whether it was set up as a kind of aperitif to the men's relay as a, a kind of open- well the men's relay is the main event isn't it like or for both of them of you know that's how it's seen is that, that it's the main event and i and it's probably you know whenever these events were set up however many years ago then nobody's been able to change it basically since you know since the world has moved on i guess yeah yeah i guess it's just that I guess with a lot of sporting events, you have it, that historical blue ribbons or what's seen as the blue ribboned event in sport. Mm. You think about the men's 100 metres in the Olympics. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the the Tour de France, the male versus, I don't think there's a female equivalent of that at the moment either, mm. of just of what society deems as the curtain raiser and then the, uh, the finisher, which mm. is not a... <laughs> not a scenario for a modern world probably so but i think it's 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 a lot more complicated than saying that the way it's done now is wrong because how to change it how to improve it lots of people have been having their opinions and i don't really want to get too much into detail about this because i'm hoping we'll we'll have a chat a proper chat with with some of the people involved in this campaign maybe some people from the uk as well about how the situation is over here as well as in Sweden. But um, so Gustav Bergman is what um, you know, top uh, Swedish uh, athlete has been kind of talking a little bit, little bit about it on Instagram. He's always quite active in things like this, basically. Um, and he's kind of said, how can it be that one of our most important and largest competitions has this inequality built into the competition structure? And and he's saying, if you're like the seventh, eighth best lady in the club woman in a club then you know you're going to end up kind of on the periphery but if you're the seventh eighth best man in the club you're really important so he thinks that this 10 men makes the makes the club focus on let's have make 10 men great for our relay team we're going to put this effort we're going to put this coaching effort this training effort into making these 10 men or you know 11 12 because you've got a few just in case anybody gets injured but you only need to focus on building five women for your team, you know. Um, so men in, are investing, he's saying men are investing more in orienteering more than women, and it's a consequence of what the kind of competition structure looks like. Although some people were saying, oh, maybe, but there's less women in orienteering anyway. You know, some clubs, they're going to be hard to close the gap. Can you have these two relays going on at the same time? Like, would it be that the women run the men's relay? What if your clubs don't have 10 women to compete? Like, Gustav's point is that, right, this will force clubs to invest in their female squads by making sure there's there's more women running the, running the races. Yeah, yeah. I, I, th- I think there's other stuff as well. Like, you know, mm-hmm. it's probably just the same place as in, in the men's and in the women's race. Some people just don't want to run in the night. Mm-hmm. And they just won't want to do it, and they will mm-hmm. they will prefer a day leg over that. So there's some people who definitely are on the women's side who probably won't want to see it change at all because they really enjoy the system as it is now. Um, mm-hmm. And and then they get the the women's competition is run as a women's competition, uh, and they're not fighting with the men's competition for maybe for importance. You know, if you're having the the but all the teams running at the same time, then you're looking at your 
you're going to be focusing on the teams in the lead, which are likely to be the men's teams, of course, because they run faster. Um, yeah. So, yeah, that's tricky too. Yeah. Oh, definitely, definitely. And if you're, if they do, it's a lot of infrastructure to set up to have two parallel relays of 10 legs going on at the same time, I would, I would think. So to make sure that it's completely independent of the other and that there's no kind of stragglers coming through, uh, you know, in... 1000th place in the men's trying to get some camera time when it's the lead women mm -hmm. coming through um mm -hmm. it's difficult and yeah the investment of because because some clubs are you know or they have more investment in their women's team than their men's team at the moment i guess people like jess halliday's team dom narvitz i mm -hmm. don't know if they've got a very strong men's team um gothenburg Mjolnir, much stronger women's team than the uh the men probably yeah, yeah. Corinto as well yeah they won it last time in uh 2019 yeah yeah um, so, so I do, I do see Gustav's point of yeah, that investment coming in to uh, or forcing the investment into the women's teams as well to make them more equal. But well, it, well it's, it's like it's, it's like um, something a point that Pauline Trine is going to make, which is that you know if you think you've got a male or she said they had a boy heavy team, so they they actively went and like right, how can we attract more girls? How can we make sure that we're putting on activities in the club, making the club a place that girls want to be. So, you know, they almost force themselves to go and find more girls to join. So from that way, you can see kind of that happen. Definitely. And I think we've, I mean, we've got just as big a problem with it in the UK in terms of participation numbers, don't we, for, mm -hmm. for men versus women. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, the, you list the number of athletes in the GB squad there. There's yeah, more yeah, men yeah. than there are women. There's a, a smaller women's pool. Um and I don't know if that's due to historic funding issues or just the way UK clubs are set up, but... Oh, goodness me, there's, I could go so much like into this and historically looking back at like things just like Lag and Lear selections when it, it, it changed from being, right, every, every region sends one male and one female athlete to be, you know, for, year, for a few years there was something like you know eight girls and 16 boys going and then a few times it was the other way around but predominantly boys doing it and then it's like but then the, the girls need to be the right uh kind of ability to be going because some people they won't take people if they don't think they're they're they can cope essentially with the the week of training but then then is it therefore down to clubs to be like right well, we need to be doing the right things to make sure we have enough girls who can be selected who can go forward for that selection so hey it's it's this is why i want to have a bigger conversation about this because i think it's going to be super interesting and even and then there's like so i think there's like a wider thing about equality within swedish orienteering going on and i think the the swedish orienteering federation are going to be talking about this in their march board meeting because i think some of their club membership is roughly 50 50 they've got Almost, I think they've got forty percent women at like board level in orienteering clubs, but in other ways, you know, they're not meeting the the Swedish Sports Federation's like gender equality goals. So there's like kind of in some ways we're doing well, in some ways there's kind of gaps. So yeah, because mm. it's it, it is because it's really delicate because it's, you look at it and go, Gustav's point on the if you're the eighth best woman, oh, you're kind of marginalised. But if if there's four people per team at Venla mm. it makes for a really stacked field and intense racing probably mm -hmm. more so than the men so in in many ways it's more competitive and it's 
you've well, got I to guess get better it's, I guess it's what I guess it's what you well, yes, exactly. There's not the space, but I guess it's what what are your ultimate goals? Are do you want to have better athletes? Do you want to have better participation? Do you you know? There's still I think there's there's a much bigger, but I'm not sure that that it does make the um it more competitive to get into teams because we we always say every time when I'm commentating we we say there's a few of the women who are really exceptional and they're really really good and there is a bit of a gap back to quite a lot of the rest but the men's the men's is much more difficult to predict because there's more competition the more the guys are just closer together in terms of you know the time that they'll do the race so but then that that is not a problem with in orienteering that is a problem with sports the world over in my opinion in my experience so um yeah but so i think this is definitely going to be like an ongoing discussion that i'd kind of love to have more of but uh that's certainly been what's been going on kind of in the uh in the swedish scene Mm. well yeah as you say hopefully we can get um one of the people involved in the petition to uh to come on and uh and give their view as well that'd be really yeah yeah but away from the world of Swedish orienteering, we're going to move on to British club orienteering and dive into our interview with the trainers of the South Yorkshire Orienteers. Um, really quite in-depth, this one, on some of the ways you need to set up a junior orienteering programme. So uh, we'll dive into it. Pauline, Pete, um, welcome to The Run-In. Uh, why don't you start by kind of outlining, introducing what, SYO do in terms of your schools league and your wider like junior and development program give us it in a a nutshell to start off with okay so we have a regular schools league which we've renamed the Saturday series to make it appeal to a broader audience Um, and we have 10 of those events per year Um, we have a regular club night program Um, We have regular coaching programme and we enter as many junior and team competitions as we can and we have regular evening events with socials um, to encourage a club feel. Yes, the social side of things is really important and of course all this is like in a regular year, that's what you'd like to do. How much have you actually been able to do this year? So we've tried to get out orienteering whenever we can um during the really hard lockdown we tried to develop our online presence we um did we encouraged people to take part in the orienteering on the locked or lockdown orienteering as it was there we did catching features um club catching features um we had a resource page like a hub that we called it where people could download old maps and download map run activities. Uh, we had an online circuits class, a junior specific circuits class, and then one for all club members. As soon as we could start getting out and doing a bit of orienteering, we um, put on what we called TOX, temporary orienteering courses. Mm-hmm. Um, so the controls were out for about 48 hours and people could download the maps and then get out and go orienteering, um, which everyone really loved everyone really enjoyed we did that weekly up until august then we started having some events again when we could um and then we came to a grinding halt with another lockdown <laughs> yeah but um, you have, we have more restrictions in the second lockdown really as far as our interior went than the first yeah 
it's yeah. harder. The count, it's oh, been harder than the council. Um, the council um, refused to let us do anything at all, like even our temporary orienteering courses, and we're still struggling to get permissions again up and running now, um, which really? is a bit frustrating. Um, wow. Uh, yeah, indeed. It's frustrating when football can continue and all this kind of stuff on council land, but orienteering can't. Yeah. So, oh, well, yeah. I'm sure that's that's something that so many people will be able to relate to. Yeah, in mm. my club, SN, you know, we were meant to have this event on a kind of what was an old golf club. It's now it was it's owned by the council, and yeah, they just said not at all. But yeah, football was going on. It was like you you can't guarantee you're not going to be in more than groups of six and I'm like well you were, you're kind of a group of one when you're orienteering you go around by yourself and you kind of at, at some points come in vaguely potentially close to somebody else yeah it's uh, been so tricky yeah I think the problem is that we we got we got shoved into the um major events team who were not given permission for anything and we're like we just want to do a bit of orienteering <laughs> but we um we from September, we got our weekly club night back up and running, and that's been unbelievably popular. Um, we've been having 70-plus participants each week at that. Um, we had two weeks ago, we were up on, um, you know, on the moors in the rain and the wind and yeah, dark, and we had, yeah, 75 people there. So it was been a good, it's been a good turnout in that respect and everyone in SYO is really engaged with all the different activities that we've put on and been really appreciative of the efforts people in the club have made to put on those activities. Mm, yeah, I've really found that, I mean, our club champs entries opened yesterday and, you know, it was filled up in an hour and a half and I think it's probably the best club champs, you know, start list we've had in years, absolutely years, because everyone's just so desperate to be out. Yeah. So on Saturday, we had a club AGM. We had, I don't know, 40 or about 40 participants, but a lot of those were families. So there were more than that at the AGM. And then we had a virtual awards and then a club quiz online. So no, I mean, so we tried, good we, club involvement. Yeah, we tried to do it as much as possible because normally we'd have club, the cha- club champs, a short AGM and then a club award session with some food and stuff. Um, that's what we've done for the past few years and it's been really popular so we tried to do the same but you know online as much as we could (laughs) yeah it's tricky to do that kind of thing but you know it's making something happen trying to keep that club culture going I guess even when you can't do what you ideally like to do so I want I, I want to hear a bit more about the your schools league which is now the Saturday series because I believe it's works so you work with the Sheffield Federation for School Sports, is that right? Yeah, that's Do right. Do you want to tell me a bit about how that works? Yeah, I'm, I can't quite remember how we, how did we, how did the initial so, concept yeah. begin? So, so, <laughs> so it started back in 2012 um, when uh, we kind of, we were a club that put on orienteering events. And that was pretty much all that we did. And we I've been to a couple of events in local parks and we kind of like hidden ourselves away in the corner of the park and we weren't really very visible. Um, and so uh, did a series of three sort of Saturday afternoon events, um, basically in popular parks, sighted outside the cafe, basically. So nice and visible, had some signs made up for it and got a few people along to those. Um, and at the time, Colin Best, who was regional development officer, was keen to set up 
um, a you know have another go at setting up a schools league. So that, I think there used to be several years prior to that earlier a schools league a Sheffield schools league and then that folded so it was his attempt to try and get that up and running Um, and we had the schools league separate in the morning before the Saturday afternoon series but again it was very hard to get teachers to bring the children along they were quite poorly attended Um, so in 2013 we relaunched it as it was the SFSS schools league but it was also bring parents to bring the children rather than relying on the school teachers to Mm. bring the children but the sfss involvement allowed us to make it free of charge um so i don't know i don't know if sheffield's different than most places but so this sheffield federation of school sports they run a variety of different sports into school sports activities throughout the year so there's probably about 10 to 15 different sports represented um and one of those is a cross country uh, during the autumn and, and early spring. And that's certainly at primary school level is pretty well, you know, they have like 100, 150 kids in each, each year race. Um, and so that year we got like um, 500 flyers made up. Actually, probably it must be more than that. And basically went along to that. And, and every kid who crossed the line, we gave a flyer to with the series on it. And, mm-hmm. and the numbers that we got from that were, were much bigger. So it was all about getting the word out and making it clear. And, you know, that was how it kind of all started. Yeah, the, I think there's a lot of outdoory people in Sheffield and they were taking their children to the Orient, to the cross country. And they were the same sort of people who'd willingly take their kids to the orienteering. So that there was a good crossover there. Mm. I mean, I was going to say like, Sheffield seems to be like, the perfect place to get something like this going you know yeah like the outdoor city it's probably a well a demographic similar to what we've got already in orienteering so reasonably well-educated middle-class families who are kind of keen for their kids to be active you've got good parks stuff like that like it's um a lot of mapped areas yeah as well yeah yeah like yeah. it's great i mean it's i, I suppose you know we, we kind of like over the years we've tinkered around with it and we know kind of what will work and what what doesn't and it's very clear that you know that people don't tend to travel very far for these things or or, or a large bulk of them won't certainly initially so you kind of need to keep the the areas really quite close probably within you know two or three miles of each other if you can get two or three four parks there can be anything there can be any size we've used some tiny little parks in Sheffield to to have an event you know and we've managed to do other things for you know, more established orienteers. So we've had, you know, mapped urban areas around them so that we can do green and blue courses so that, so that we can really appeal to everybody, hopefully. Yeah, so that's definitely been a development to put on urban courses, a green and a blue for the for adults um, that go outside the parks um, because the parks we use are really small. Like the botanical gardens in Sheffield is absolutely tiny. And <laughs> a lot of established orienteers that I've spoken to have been... Oh, I didn't. Re- that's a tiny, tiny. How can you do orienteering there? Amazed, and we, yet we do that. We get. I mean, we've we've been going to the botanical gardens every year for seven years now. Um, and one year we go one way around, and we one and the other year we go the other way around, and that's fine because it doesn't matter because the kids move up the age classes, and you know they just enjoy racing yeah. around. 
Yeah. And the winning time, like the winning time in the white will be five minutes. Yeah, I've I've heard like white white course, you know, sixty plus hundred kids or whatever on it, and you're yeah, like two two hundred on the white two hundred yeah. kids, and it's wow. like eight hundred meters or something, and <laughs> yeah. winning so time. Last... But it's great. But you're they're out there and they're doing it. Yeah. So so what will happen is you know the good ones will race round and then they'll just do another course. That's mm-hmm. great, and they can progress and get more confident and do some harder courses. And the ones that are new to it aren't out forever and can achieve and get success and it really appeals to the little kids you can do it when you're you know if you're four three four um because it's only short so you mm-hmm. get loads of toddlers going around enjoying oh, wow. doing the beep beeps as they call it <laughs> <laughs> that's brilliant so i so with the sfss like the schools sign up for the whole the whole program and i think i think i've seen they pay like 40p or 45p per child at their school. that's right and then that means that's completely free for those kids to take part in any yeah. of those events. That's I have not heard of anything like that. It's so great. So some of those mm. some of those events are just inter-school competitions mm. that ter- the school takes them to, and that's it. I think the cross country and the orienteering are where it differs in that they are um, the parents take them to that. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it, it, the, all the offerings are a bit different, but it is it's it's great. It's you know it's a really good concept. So. Mm. And and how many the, schools the, are there signed up as well? Um, mm, ne- nearly all secondaries in Sheffield, and I'd probably say about maybe two thirds. Oh no, I'd say about half primaries. But we're a bit. We do. We sort of just say Sheffield schools are allowed to yeah. well, you, get okay. do it for free because it's, it's just a too complicated for us to. Yeah, yeah, to verify, oh, yeah. which primary school are you on? Okay, that's not on the list. Oh, right, well, we'll charge you like two pounds or something. Like, yeah. But saying, saying that in terms of the league, you know, we have schools, we have kids coming from schools in Derbyshire who are part of our Sheffield. We, we kind of, there's a, there's a big Sunday football league that goes on that's the Sheffield Football League, you know. And, uh, but the Sheffield Football League spreads out through like Rotherham, Doncaster and Barnsley, you know, it's a massive area. So we've kind of taken the same approach in terms of, Basically, if you want to come along to our event and do our series, then you can bring your, you know, you can represent your school and and, and do it. That's that's fine with us. Yeah, you don't want to exclude anyone, you know, just the more because the you live slightly in the wrong place. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Um, orienteering is very unlike any other sports that you do. You know, it's not like football. It's not like hockey or athletics. It's not it's not really like a drop and go kind of a sport and where you're turning up in the you know the same place the same time every week kind of a thing that must be like quite challenging for to kind of get through to parents and things like that yeah i mean the flyer really helped so it it basically said it was always it's always at the same time once a month and the date changes but that you know there's a clear flyer and it says 12th October, it's always on a Saturday afternoon, 12th October, Botanical Gardens, you know, 14th November, Incliffe Park. And because it's really visible, they don't need to work, they know where these parks are and they just need to turn up. Mm. Um, And I I guess to begin with, our major success was the fact that you didn't need to pre-register, you just rocked up any time between half 12 and 3 and you could enter and run. Obviously, we've had to adapt this year. So we had to finish early last year. We Obviously, our last one was March. Then this year, we did start again in September and October. Um, we 
didn't publicize it at all. So we didn't aim to attract people who'd never done it before. It was for people who, club members, and then people who just regularly came and understood the concept of it. And everyone had to pre-enter. But actually, our numbers, and we chose quiet locations where our numbers are normally lower anyway. Um, But the numbers at those locations held up compared to normal. If anything, they were more. On, On the one that we had in October... It rained torrentially the entire day and we still had 240 runs, which is unbelievable, you know, in quite a quiet sort of out of the way park. So we were really pleased. Mm, That's fantastic. And do most parents, do you encourage parents to kind of stick around and stay around then? Yeah, I mean, so if they're little, so what, what tends to happen is parents come and they shadow their kids around when they're really little. And then they realise that they're a bit redundant and they stand around. Um, <laughs> so we might try and sort of say, oh, do you want... If they start getting involved with the club a little bit more, then we'll encourage them to help. But what what we've found a lot, if the, if the kids are keen and we can get them joining in the club and then the parents start to get to know people, they suddenly think, well, I'll have a go at this. Um so, and, so we started an adults league, didn't we? We started an adults ago. league. We, oh. we we rebranded it the Saturday series rather than saying it was a schools league. So that, um, and we do get pair, you know, newcomers, um, adults that aren't with kids as well. Um, and but yeah, because loads more parents do it. I mean, the parents are really competitive now. So yeah, <laughs> there's of human nature. Yeah, yeah. And basically, as the kids have got older and don't need their parents to sort of be there at the finish or follow them round, then the parents have realised they might as well have a go themselves. And um, the same with the club nights, you know, that we have an adults group at the club, club nights. And now they're my keenest participants. You know, the teenagers, they're good. They come along. But, you know, they can be a bit fickle. But the, the adults, they're there week in, week out, whatever the weather. <laughs> That's brilliant. Well, that's the um, way to get them hooked. Like it's such a, yeah, it's such a family sport that almost it's it's really hard to get a junior to progress to any sort of level if your family aren't involved. I guess yeah, totally. because of because of the travel involved simply and the time yeah. it takes. So like loads of parents, you know, we 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 if the children have been coming to the schools league regularly we'll send them information about joining the club or we'll invite them to come along to coaching. Um, well, this was prior, obviously, to this year. That's yeah, yeah. approach. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, 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 and then once they were hooked in, what we would find is that parents, if you ask them, oh, there's a special competition on, like the Yvette Baker Heat, can you take your children, you know, can so-and-so go? They would be really keen. They'd be really supportive. They'd drive their kids. If you said... British schools champs can, you know, can they come? They'll come on a coach for three hours to support the kids. But they wouldn't, because there's a specific reason for doing that, but what they wouldn't do is see the point of going to perhaps that regional event an hour away or the northern champs two hours away. And therefore, um, the children's progression was quite sporadic. So the Mm. only way that you can really get the children to be proper orienteers is with parental involvement, I think. 
Um, yeah. unless, unless, I mean, there are there are people who have become really good, who have got lifts off people in the club, but there are a few a bit sort of few and far between. I mean, yeah, really. or, the, or or some parents will take you know take the kids. Anyway. So anyway, you know, because they see that the kids are getting value out of it and, you know, they're, they're happy to do that. So, so in the um, GB Tier 1 talent squad now, there are three SBO juniors and two of them started in in our school's league. So they were from non-orienteering families and they are now, G, you know, talent squad orienteers, which I think just shows you what can be done with the right development programme. Mm. And I guess then, so presumably with with just the people who are doing just the Saturday series, is there much coaching involved there? Like when, no. do, when do you, so it's kind of then the next progression is doing kind of the coaching sessions. Is that right? Yeah. So yeah. so when we, we had the schools league up and running for two or three years, and then we realised that whilst they were really popular, membership was slowly increasing but there wasn't much um real take up and we were still really just a club that put events on we weren't really offering much to make it worthwhile being a member but we'd had i mean and at the same time we also had quite a few parents and people asking about you know, is there any coaching? We, we weren't particularly doing coaching at that time. So, mm. so, yeah. we, so we established... Because it can a be a big jump from, a, you know, a local park to, right, come to this forest, like, the, yeah. and you've not actually been taught the skills, you've just kind of learnt it yourself, I guess, yeah. right? Yeah, so, so we started a regular coaching programme and it was really popular. We did that for two or three years, really focusing on that coaching programme. But it was still a bit sporadic, um, sort of in between when people in the club can manage to put it on, you know, when there wasn't an event or squad coaching or, or something. Um, then about four years ago, we uh, applied for a Sport England grant to set up a regular club night. And I think that's when the successes really made a difference. When the, when the juniors were coming week in, week out to train all through the year, regular time, and we did... 45 minutes of physical training, 45 minutes of technical training. And I think it one they were seeing their friends, they really felt part of the club. You could talk to them about the events that were on and encourage them to come to them a bit more. You perhaps would look at a map of the regional event in advance so they sort of knew a bit more about what, what they could expect. And I think that probably had the biggest impact really mm. on uh, developing them as orienteers. Well, as well as developing their orienteering skills, like that social side, as you kind of touched on, seeing the same people every week, like seeing their friends, having that motivation, that's what they want to, that's why they want to continue with orienteering over, you know, maybe they also do several other sports as well. That's why they want to keep going with it. It's that social side, I guess. So we have absolutely loads of teenagers that come um, really high teenage well, membership. I mean, your, your group of your 11-year-old girls that you had. Oh, yeah. So, <laughs> so I, 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 at the moment, have a group of 13 and 14-year-old girls, you know, the prime age that these girls would drop out normally. And we are, we normally are based at a school, and so we do quite a lot inside during the winter months, but obviously that's not been possible this year. So we've stuck outside 
and they've kept coming, you know, through the dark and the rain all this time. And they seem to be really enjoying it. And that's great. You know, the fact that they're coming every week and going out with their head torches in the, <laughs> in the mud. It's, it's, the probably, it's probably 75% seeing their friends and 25% doing the orienteering. Well, maybe, maybe I'm getting them wrong and it will fluctuate <laughs> among the group. But, you know, that's, yeah, that's why they want to do it. Yeah, and they're having fun and they're enjoying it and they get, they're, you know, staying fit and all that kind of stuff, I guess, at the same time. Like, yeah. Um, and so we've also, alongside the club night, every once a month it'll be an event with a social at a pub. Obviously, again, not this year, but yeah, in yep. a normal year we do that. And, fa- and and that was really popular with families, that the whole family would come and, you know, eat afterwards and, and socialise. Mm, that's great. How do you sell orienteering to new people? Do you have, like, a a way you generally tend to describe it or things you like to try and always point out to when you're speaking to new people and trying to get them excited about orienteering? I, I think to a certain extent we don't need to sell it because, well, because, the, you know, they come along to a Saturday, they come along to the Saturday event. There's like two or 300 people milling around, people running off and, you know, so they can see what's what's happening. So to but a certain extent people, you don't to need to sell it. people who've not got to your school's league yet, like not got to your Saturday series yet. Do you, or maybe maybe it's the case that you don't have to sell it. The word of mouth, yeah, and the people bringing their friends is enough. I, th- yeah. I think you're probably right. I think I think that I think that's it. I think we got a critical mass of people, which was enough. Most people, I think, come via word of mouth. I think the flyers in the first place, and we used to put big banners outside the park, say "Orienteering here." Um, yeah, a couple of weeks in advance. A couple of weeks know. before beforehand to publicize it we use facebook you know i i, I change how what i put on it pictures of it depending on who i'm trying to attract so depending on the event we're marketing whether it's an urban race that i'm attracted trying to attract normal orienteers to or maybe the saturday series will have a different photo and a different slant on it um i, I might emphasize the benefits of the park, you know, or come and enjoy the botanical gardens and what else is there or the adventure playground or the cafe um, when I'm marketing it to schools league, uh, Saturday series participants. Mm-hmm. Um, but we have, you know, I try and use photos of people running, but then yeah. equally <laughs> I will use a photo of a family with a small child looking at a map and holding, the, you know, so I, mm. I, I do try a variety of different things. Well, and I'm I not, think... I think photos, the photos that you use are so important and like it's discussions that I've had for a number of years about like what photos should we use to show orienteering and in all its kind of like spectrum that orienteering is from, you know, a family with a small child kind of pottering around to, you know, the top end people like Will going around and doing, you know, smashing it at the highest level and everything in between. How do you represent orienteering? And I'm always like, the photos you want need to show people actually orienteering not oh, yeah. kind of like going around looking like maybe they're on a run or they're on a walk or whatever but you know like a map and a control like you need yeah. to be able to see that ultimately there's you can do lots of different types of photos within that whether it's whatever you want to show whether it's that exciting terrain or like the technology or the mental battle or whatever or anything but you know showing people actually orienteering is just a basic 
<laughs> yeah. So, so, so to be fair, the photos will have a control, yeah. a person, yeah. and a map, and a dibber. And, <laughs> and, and it's amazing and, and, how many people <laughs> don't get that. That's my point, yeah. right? Like, so you know that that's the, the thing that you need to do. I know that's the thing we need to do, but not everybody does. No. Yeah, yeah. So they like, should. They yeah, should. but sometimes it'll be a group of girls running in, laughing and smiling. Sometimes it'll be a small child. Sometimes it's an adult. But yeah, it'll it. It tends, it, to, be, it tends to be a photo of Ollie that we've had for years. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like, very photogenic man. Ollie doing Roy some urban orienteering in his shorts. We, we use that one quite a lot. <laughs> <laughs> that's brilliant. But it's that's so important. And I guess some a big part of it is just, is the people you have in the club and engaging with the people who are there. Because a lot of the times, you know, if you're not having, just being nice and communicative and showing you're a friendly club and a friendly group of people then people don't really necessarily want to make that jump to the yeah, next yeah. section and sometimes i think you've got to almost like if you say you know you've got a vet baker trophy heat or something you've got to sometimes it takes inviting people to go you know we'd like you to come and join the team and already having that good connection from your club members makes that a whole lot easier to identify people who might want to come. Yeah, so for for Yvette Baker Trophy, for Compass Sport Cup, for, for club champs, my approach was always to in, e- individually email people to encourage them to join up. So there'd be a closing day and day before anybody who hadn't signed up, I'd email them. And sometimes, you know, that would be, maybe an established club member that's been a member for ages but perhaps doesn't come quite so often anymore um you know they've got other commitments orienteering is perhaps not the main sport anymore they're still a member and i'd email them and say oh you're coming and and most people would reply and say oh actually yes okay i will do thanks for thinking of me and i I, so i i think the individual invite can make a big difference to encouraging people to come along to things Mm, that's the yeah thanks for having thought of me you know that personal like you think i'm worth being on the team and you know having that contribution to the club yeah one of my bugbears is i find a lot of people who I speak to, who are just random members of the public, have done maybe some orienteering at school. They don't really know what it is. And I'm, that always kind of surprises me that they do generally, you know, it's with a map and a compass, but they don't properly know what it is. And I wonder, I think historically, and, and maybe still going on, it's maybe negative experiences at school or scouts or, you know, teachers who don't really know what they're doing or whatever, who kind of don't really have a proper map or whatever. So... I guess, are you trying to overcome some of that and create that positive experience so people have that positive association with the sport, even if they don't end yeah. up doing it later on? You know. So we do get people bringing their children who, when the kids finish it, go, oh, it's changed a bit since my day, you know. <laughs> oh, it's so much better, you know. Oh, hasn't technology moved on and so on? So I, I think that is good that we are definitely changing the perception of orienteering and I do a lot of work in schools where I put in permanent orienteering courses into schools um, and teach the teachers how to deliver orienteering so that the experiences that Sheffield children at school children well and children in South Yorkshire as well um, 
the experiences they get in a school are perhaps the proper orienteering experience. Yeah, all these, it's 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 really hard to get. You know, when you're still on site and you can't go off site, or you know, and, and teachers maybe being quite risk averse, not wanting to let their you know their kids all the way running around the school. But yeah, if, at least if you can have some input from a actual orienteer to make it a lot better than it would be otherwise i think it makes a huge difference yeah so going back you you said to me oh how do you sell the support and we sort oh, yeah. of said oh we don't really but <laughs> <laughs> that's perhaps we're we're doing ourselves a bit of a disservice there because on the flyer we do describe what orienteering is and it is on our website what orienteering is and you know on the on a, on a facebook ad if it's for Saturday series, we'll describe what orienteering is. So I think we do. Yeah. Right. We, yeah <laughs> <laughs> and how, how about do you describe it? it? A bit more. So we would, I, I, I mean, how, how do we describe it? Um, orienteering is an adventure sport where you have a map to navigate your way around different points in the fastest time possible. Something, something, along, like, something yeah. along those lines. Because that's, yeah. that's one of my bugbears is when people, yeah getting across the the time imperative of yeah. orienteering the fact that it is a race yeah at the end of the day <laughs> yeah so we try and say it's an adventure sport it's, I, I always emphasize exploring the outdoors um mm. get out and explore sheffield's parks and you know open spaces i, I think fundamentally kids like competition um but they like to yeah. they like to know that they're doing okay in a competition and i think we're fortunate now with the size of the school's events that, you know, if you've got 200 kids on a white course, then even if you're like 180th, you've still got, you know, loads of people around you, you know, within a few seconds, probably. And so actually next time you can be trying to be 170th, 160th or whatever like that. So, you you know, so it's, you can see that you can progress and, you know, you've got, there's lots of other people. Um, I think if you've only got a few people on a course, I think this goes for anything, you know, it doesn't matter where, if you go to run a blue course somewhere and there's only five people on it, you kind of like think, well, you know, what's the point, you know, but if you, Mm. yeah, if you've got lots of people on the course, then, then there's much more competition and it's much more positive experience. I think. It motivates you to kind of put more effort in, do better. And, and I guess for, well, I guess maybe mostly for your juniors who'll end up doing better, maybe as they become 14, 16, something like that. But even any age, it's going to spur you on to be motivated, I guess. What's what's the ultimate aim? Like, is it getting juniors running for the club? Is it setting the net wide as possible? Is it creating the best view of our sport more widely? Is it all of them? <laughs> That's quite a quite tough question. Yeah. Um... It's definitely about making South Yorkshire Orienteers a really great club to be part of, you know. And it's not, yes, we we want to win the Compass Book Cup, <laughs> trophy, cup, not trophy, well, cup. Essentially, essentially <laughs> yeah. we want to be F- FBO. We want to be FBO, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> be about the bush. <laughs> so for listeners outside the UK, that's the, uh, the yearly club competition and a big heated rivalry between... Both Valley Orienteers in Scotland and SYO, isn't it now? <laughs> there's, there's an awful lot of uh, of interfamily rivalry between the two clubs as well. So yeah, it's um, ah. it's it's quite. Uh, there's a lot of uh, yeah, a lot of close links. I think friends and family wise. So yeah, but um, 
uh, so yes, it's to, it's to win the big competitions, it's to do well in relays, it's to get lots of British champions, you know, to do well in big events, but it's also to have um, loads of partic- loads of members travelling to those big events. So you've got a really nice club atmosphere and social situation when you get there. Um, but equally, we're really happy to have our local members that just come to the um, you know the Saturday series events or the local even events or just come to club nights. That's fine as well. Um, I think it's just wanting it to be a club people want to be a member of at whatever level they want to be a member mm. of. Mm. Um, I would really love the scene in Sheffield or scene in SYO to be replicated more so. You know, there's some, there are clubs doing an amazing job where um, they've got lots of juniors um, and, you know, membership is thriving and, and, and mm. they, are, they do lots of, uh, training and coaching and and it would be great if we haven't you know if every club was like that yeah well I've evident you know SYO have chosen to very actively invest in this way I mean I so I believe your role Pauline is like a paid part-time role for the club yeah. you know like that's a very kind of positive decision that the club has made in right right we are serious about this we have enough funds to be able to pay for somebody to do a couple of days a week or whatever it is and you know let's make this a really important thing a really big thing yeah I mean it it seems a risky strategy because what you what you're thinking is hang on everyone is a volunteer um but there is a big difference between turning up and volunteering for an event and managing how the club you know the club's future and strategy um and taking the responsibility and and i think having a paid person means that someone can devote that time to what to the big picture basically of what's going on in the club um it's, it's so not, we've never the... we've never i've never we don't pay for organizers and planners that's always remained a voluntary role and i make sure that I do my fair share of that. So, and I, and helping at events and all of that would be unpaid. So it's the, it's the coaching and the club night and the coordinating and the admin and the marketing and the publicity that is paid. Um, mm. Well, I mean, the thing is in, in the UK, it's unusual to have a role like that. Yet in Scandinavia, it isn't, you know, they pay for coaches, you know, people are paid like one day a week or Couple few days a month, or or to up to a full, much full time even full time mm-hmm. coaches. For our, our coach in in EFK leading is full time. Yeah, I, I, you know, I could easily do this full time. You know, <laughs> there's there's enough work, and and actually, we've always found that the hours you put in, you get back in terms of increased membership and increased participation at events. So, actually. It's not as if the the role is a drain on club funds at all, because yeah. that increased participation brings money back into the club. So you know, it, yeah. It, I mean, a lot of a lot of it initially was funded by the club night money from Sport England, but mm. but once we had that up and running, no, it, now it, yes. I, don't, I don't think it really you know has a drain on the club finances no, at no, all. No, no. So, so for the club night, the um, that 
we applied for the grant for that. That so that was separate for the club to the club funding it. And after the first year, we managed to make it um, self funding anyway. So. I yeah. suppose in, in line with sort of also with Pauline's role, we also have a like a development subcommittee, um, which meet, well, I, I, would, I would have said every six or seven weeks, but it's been a little bit longer recently. <laughs> but um, yeah, and, and there we're looking at, you know, well, what are we doing at the moment? How is that going? What do we need to look at? Um, you know, what areas are we not doing particularly well at? So, you know, a couple of years ago, we looked at, well, okay, great. We've, we've, we've kind of cracked the juniors and family stuff but actually I think at the time we only had maybe three WRM21s in the club um, you know so a tiny number um, and so it's kind of like, okay well we need to help and and increase that number you know try and try and help those who, who want to be in the club because there are a fair number of people kicking around in Sheffield who are either orienteers or ex-orienteers um, or irregular orienteers should we say um, and, uh, you know, actually, if they're not in SYO, then there must be a reason they're not in SYO. And can we do anything to actually, you know, help make that better? So we, we created a, um, like a group of... Yeah, know, so I've got together like a focus group in the pub of that age group and invited them along to ask them what, what would make the club more attractive to them. We established a WhatsApp group for that age group where they could communicate and go out for runs. They wanted a, a like a circuits class. They didn't really want to come along to the club night, but they wanted a circuits class, a runner's circuits class. So we got that up and running, um, which was in a gym before we had to go online. Um, and, and then obviously we rebranded the Saturday series so that we could attract newcomers to that and it not be quite as obviously kids orientated. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And presumably working with Sheffield, with Shuok as well and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we, we always try and support Shuok and what they're doing and stuff. Um, I guess the difficult thing with um, university clubs is the changing personnel each year. But yeah. Oh, gosh, yeah. <laughs> the ice, university yeah. clubs and societies and everything, have a, like a, they have a three-year memory. You know, you can't you can't get any sort of progression on there and you you can see them like keeping making the same mistakes or the same, you know, having the same issues because they, you know, there's only a three year memory there. Yeah. And yeah. And uh, I mean, it's not even a year, is it? It, it Basically by the time, by the time they get up and running, it's October and then by May they're done. (laughs) It's quite hard. By the time I've got myself in contact with the new chair, they've, t- <laughs> they've handed over. Yeah, that's really tough. That's really tough. Um, so what's your advice? What is your advice for other clubs who want to do the same or similar? Like what things should they aim to do? What, you know, things maybe have you tried and it hasn't gone quite as well, maybe? Um, thing, just know that not everything works you know not to, and not to give up straight away to increase your membership you've got to get some participation first so you need to put on a regular series of events for for, for a sustained amount of time to build up some participation and then once you've got that then you can invite them to do coaching sessions or or club night or something similar but you you can't sort of start an initiative like coaching if you don't have any people to invite to it so 
Um, I, I think it's like spreading the net as wide as you can first and then you know you're going to get a little bit from there and then you know a group of those will go to the next stage and a group of those will go to the next stage yeah. and yeah and the other thing is and I think you know I, I mean this year has been really difficult um, at, for attracting newer and younger people into the club um, but at various times there have been orienteering clubs that have been really successful and have great junior programs. And then a club will rest on its laurels a bit. And um, that then those juniors grow up and suddenly that club doesn't have any replacement juniors. And that was something I was really aware of, was that we've got this great um, bunch of juniors now that are now sort of 16s and 18s. Um, we've got to make sure that we keep feeding in at the bottom. And up until this year, that that was going quite well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we were constantly trying to attract in those from age eight onwards and keep developing them because otherwise those teenagers grow up, go to university and suddenly you've lost your junior section. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So that's something that when, when, when all this is over and we're back to normal, if there mm-hmm. is that, let's hope so, um, you know, I'll have to really work on, I think, a bit to um, replace. And pick um, up some of the momentum that, you know, yeah. you, you've got, there's a lot of momentum and you lost when, that a bit. Yeah, when we, just about a year ago, just maybe a bit before, a year and a half ago, our club night at the bottom end was bo- really boy-dominated loads of noisy noisy boys and um very few girls and I was like this is getting a bit of a pattern here I need to attract some girls so I worked really hard to look at the girls who are coming regularly to the schools league and then invite specifically talk to them in face to face and invite them personally to our club nights and and to get them to come along because I didn't want it to be just a boy dominated sport and I wanted the girls to come along and um, that really worked. And so it's just looking all the time to see or where where might there be an issue in the future type thing. Mm. Yeah, I mean, the other thing is, is I think orienteering clubs suffer a little bit from their, they generally have such wide geographic spread. So we're South Yorkshire orienteers, but like 95% of our membership is in Sheffield and probably about 90%, well, maybe 80% is in Southwest Sheffield. That's just the way it is. Um, and I think... As a club, you have to look at it and go, okay, well, let's let's really focus on maybe one area because I think if you try and, you know, if say if you try to do a series of events but try to spread it out geographically throughout your your club area, you're not going to get well. You're going to get a few people that might travel between them all, but but majority of your new people that you're trying to target and are not going to be travelling for you know forty minutes, hour and a half, or whatever to get to somewhere. You know, you're much better. Lots of the cities in the UK have lots of parks all pretty close to each other. You know, if I, I grew up in Nottingham and I can think of, you know, 10 or 12 parks in Nottingham pretty close to each other that you could arrange. And and to be fair to, to not, they're doing stuff like that. So, you know, but there's, um, you know, so, so really focus on an area and really try and just develop that, get it working mm-hmm. and then sort of start to spread it out a little, I think, um, so that you can get a mass of people. So if, uh, you know, all the vaccine rollout goes smoothly, if we're back up and able to do some orienteering next year, what's next for, you know, for SYO and the development? What would you ideally like to do next year? Um, 
I just well to be to get back to where we were before we before we went mm. into lockdown you know to we've, we've tried really hard to keep the club going but um and, and I think we have reasonably successfully but you know I want to get yeah to go back to those uh Saturday series events where we have four or five hundred people running and yeah coming along to all uh and then be being really keen to join the club and participate in our events and more mm. of the same really that we have been doing it, I, it's I, working so don't want to change it just want to keep it going really persuade, i'm very frustrated that this year like it it's almost seems to have been the perfect conditions to get more people into orienteering more people discovering the outdoors more people wanting to be active and you know being outside spaces where you can distance and all that kind of things i mean like the number of people who have discovered the kind of areas near me and the number of cars now parked there it's just ridiculous how people have discovered these areas that are right on their doorstep they've never been to them before it seems like it seems like the ideal time yet it's been so difficult to do anything like yeah. you just got to hope that it's going to carry on and once you know you can harness that once everything kind of gets a bit more normal and I think that that's there is a really good chance of doing that, but the 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 biggest difficulty I think facing clubs is the permissions issue is 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 getting permissions to use the areas and you know there's so many restrictions that that that's where we really need help um, that from, mm. from from British orienteering I think really um, because I think it is the biggest issue that every every club struggles with. Yeah, I totally agree. Well, thank you so much to Pauline and to Pete Triner for chatting to us. Um, I personally found that that whole chat really interesting and inspiring. And I think, you know, not all clubs have to be exactly the same, but there's, I think, a lot of things that people can kind of take from that discussion and think about. And um, I think it does show if you want to make a change to the club, then it's kind of possible to do so with a bit of... Um, a bit of energy I think um, so um, that's pretty much it though for this uh, episode of the run-in um, first of all a little bit of a word from our sponsors Envy who um, and I've been basically pretty much living in the forest one shoes um, for the past month pretty much it's been so so wet out there so those are the ones with the the, the dobs the metal dobs on and yeah they've been They've been good enough that they they don't really get stuck in all this mud that I'm that I've been kind of traipsing through. All the mud kind of kind of ends up like flying off the shoes, so I don't kind of end up sliding around. And particularly, there's been some I've been doing some hill reps where there's loads of um, wet roots, and um, I honestly would have been sliding around all over the place if it weren't for um, the metal jobs and being able to kind of get some grip on there. And in the wet ash ranges that I've been on, oh my gosh, they were keeping me in control basically so um yeah big up to the forest ones that does sound intense um and if anyone else needs a bit of help with the grip because i certainly do at the moment as well Catherine, i have a lot of empathy with you for that um <laughs> uh, the way to get a pair of envy shoes is to contact um, mary fleming at envystraight.uksales at gmail.com that is n-v-i-i-s-t-r and the number eight dot uk sales at gmail.com and she'll sort you out um but that's it 
for this week, yeah, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, it is. We've got, of course, our sprint episode with um, Pauline and with Pete coming up next week. And then we'll be back in two weeks time with a regular episode. So we'll see you then. Bye.